This is a Federal News Network podcast. If you like electric cars, then you've got to have ample supplies of critical elements needed to make them, like lithium and cobalt. Trouble is, the U.S. is highly dependent on foreign sources for most of the 35 rare earth elements needed for batteries, wind turbines, and other green items. Now the Energy Department has launched a $30 million grant program to support increasing domestic supplies of rare earth elements. For details, we'll have two guests. We'll hear from Mike McKittrick, Energy's Research and Development Consortia Program Manager. But first, for an overview of the program, we'll hear from the Acting Director of the Materials Sciences and Engineering Division in Energy's Basic Research Unit, Dr. Andy Schwartz. Andy, good to have you on. Thanks, Tom. Let's talk about this program, the basic context for it. What is the public policy here that this grant program, and it's a fairly large one, is aimed at remediating or supporting? Yeah, thanks, Tom. That's a great question. And let me just take a step back and talk about, in general, what we try to support within the Office of Basic Energy Sciences, where I sit. Our mission is really to support fundamental research to understand, predict, and eventually control matter and energy at the most basic level, at the electronic, atomic, and molecular level. And the reason to do that is to provide a foundation, a scientific foundation for new energy technologies, and in general, to support the DOE mission, the missions in energy, environment, and in national security. So in short, BES research establishes foundational knowledge on which future technological advances can be made. So in this particular case, uh, related to critical materials, the program is supporting critical materials research in really two primary areas. One is expanding the understanding and the role of both rare earth, platinum group, and other critical elements in the determination of the properties of materials and molecules at length scales ranging from the electronic to atomic, to microstructural, and eventually to sort of macroscopic scales. And the second is to advance geoscience and separation science to enhance the extraction and chemical processing of critical elements. So a lot of these rare earth elements we source overseas because they're abundant in those places. It sounds like the implication is that they are here, but they're in low concentration so that we need better technologies for getting sufficient quantities out of a whole bunch of dirt. Yes, that's right, Tom. I mean, one of the things about rare earth elements, it turns out they're not all that rare in your your crust, but they tend to be dilute. They're not highly concentrated. And so uh, where they are mined, and there are some sources in the U.S., and there have been, but you are right that most of the current sources are for rare earth elements are internationally. And where they are mined, they are often mined in a mixture with lots of other elements. And so that extraction process, how do you separate efficiently and also sustainably in an environmentally sustainable way? How do you separate the elements you want, the rare earth elements, from the rest of the mixture in a way that allows you to use them for the technologies you want? And these particular elements, and I'm focusing on cobalt for a minute because I wrote about the cobalt market when I used to write about metals markets 40 years ago, and that was an issue of supply and so forth. Is the issue for the United States now that we've always used these materials in a variety of applications, but now the need is much greater in terms of quantity because of electric cars and windmills and all of that other good stuff? Yeah, so cobalt is an example of one, and there are many, that the U.S. published a list of 35 critical materials a couple of years ago. It's being updated now, and they're going to, it's the Department of Interior that leads that effort of maintaining the list. But yes, the cobalt is one. Um, you know, one of the challenges with this space of critical elements is that what is critical at a given time changes, right? And based on the sources, based on the supply chain, and based on the technology needs, as you just pointed to. So yes, as cobalt, which is an element that is used in batteries, 
it becomes more in demand that can put pressure on the supply chain. So two of the things we talk about at the Department of Energy is diversification of supply, looking for more sources, looking for ways to get these elements out of different sources, uh, including recycled sources, for example. So the same challenges of extraction when you talk about natural resources actually comes with recycled sources. If we have this diverse feedstock that we put into a recycling plant, how do we extract out what we want from that? And also looking for substitutes. When you get back to the basic science that we support here in this part of the department, one of the things we look at is let's understand what are the properties of cobalt that make it so valuable for these technologies, and then try to figure out if we can understand that, are there alternates that we can use? Because if there are alternatives, that can mitigate some of the supply chain risks. We're speaking with Andy Schwartz, Acting Director of the Materials Sciences and Engineering Division in Basic Research at the Energy Department. And getting to the grants program itself, you mentioned that some groups will be looking at the molecular structures and how to engineer these materials. Others will be looking to devise ways to extract it more efficiently. What types of organizations do you expect to apply for these grants? I mean, mining companies, or is it more of an academic type of pursuit at this point? Yeah, great question, Tom. Mostly it's academic and national labs. So DOE operates 17 national labs. It's a huge national lab. We know them and love them well. Great. Wonderful. And universities, of course, academic research. Uh, We support academic research at 300 plus universities currently in, in lots of different topics. Most of the applications we receive in response to this because of the fundamental long-term science nature of it are likely to be from universities and national labs, though industry and nonprofit research organizations are also eligible to apply, and actually they can partner. There can be multi-institutional applications that might be led by a national lab, but they might bring in an industry partner who has a particular expertise that is relevant to the research they're proposing. So we're, we're hoping to really get some applications from across a diverse pool of institutions. And are these grants stage type of grants where, say, the first group will come up with promising ideas, then you narrow it down for more funding in the second stage? Or how does this particular grant program work? Yeah, we typically don't do that kind of staged approach that you describe. Most of the grants that we make are three-year awards, three years of funding. So the ones that are successful that come out of this competition will receive three years of funding, pending budget appropriations and all of that. But most grants are also eligible at the end of a three-year funding period to submit a proposal for renewed and continued support. And it's competed uh, typically openly. You know, again, that's pending on three years from now. What are the priorities? What's the budget allow? And all of those caveats. But because this is fundamental research, it doesn't often get completed. A lot will happen in three years, but we believe that providing longer-term sustained support. So most likely what would happen is, yeah, we make three-year awards to a group of awardees. They perform research. We're evaluating them annually through progress reports. And then at the end of that three years, again, if there's programmatic desire to do so and budgetary support, they would be given an opportunity to recompete and say, hey, this is what we've done. And now here's what we'd like to do going forward from here. And the findings here do have strategic and commercial importance for the country at some point. Do you envision a pathway for the learnings and the results of the grants research to become commercialized so that we can start mining lithium and the 35 other elements that are buried out there in the deserts? 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, the long-term goal, of course, is to have this science have impact. Not all of it, it's basic research. And the, the nature of basic research is that some of it will end up moving forward and having impact and others won't. But one of the key elements of that is to make sure that the people who are doing the basic research are well-connected with the people who are interested in applied research, technology development, and commercialization. And that that's really a two-way conversation, right? So that the people doing the science really understand what are the real challenges technologically, and they can just steer their science in a direction to try to attract those challenges and vice versa. The people doing technology development and commercialization see the innovation coming out of the science and say, hey, I saw that there's a great scientific discovery. We can make use of that in our technology space. So one way we do that is close coordination. Um, So the Office of Science, where I sit, the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy has strong programs in this area. The Office of Fossil Energy, of course, is heavily involved. The Office of Nuclear Energy And the sort of more recent RPE, Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, also has investments in this area. And we coordinate closely internally in the department to ensure that we all understand what's being done in different spaces and that that information and knowledge can get passed back and forth. So bottom line, then, we are aiming, just as we aimed for independence in fossil fuels earlier, we are aiming for some degree of rare earth elements independence now. Absolutely. I mean, the goal, the long-term goal is to establish sustainable, reliable domestic supply chains for the rare earths and for others, right? The rare earths are a subset of all the critical materials. They get a lot of attention and they're certainly important, but lithium's not a rare earth and cobalt's not a rare earth. So some of the ones we've mentioned already are, are also important. So for all of these, yes, the goal is to establish reliable, sustainable, and, and, and if possible, domestic supply chains um, in the long term. Andy Schwartz is Acting Director of the Materials Sciences and Engineering Division for Basic Research at the Energy Department. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thanks, Tom. I'm really happy to have been here. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So, what we're trying to do is is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is Ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, 
And they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Verizon. With Verizon, you can now get a private 5G network, so you can do more than connect your business. You can make it even smarter. Now ports can know where every piece of cargo is and where it's going. Robots can predict breakdowns and order their own replacement parts, and retailers can get ahead of the fashion trend of the day with a new line tomorrow. With a Verizon private 5G network, you can get more agility and security, giving you more control of your business. We call this enterprise intelligence. From the network America relies on, Verizon. 5G ultra-wideband available in select areas. Pre-qualification required for private 5G network. Terms apply. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.